right, all right, all right. Welcome to the Cavish Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, both of us attended the U.S. Navy League's three-day sea, air, and space gathering just outside of Washington, D.C. We saw a lot and we heard a lot, and we'll talk about our takeaways later in the pod. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. Discussion and debate about the U.S. Navy's budget request to decommission 24 ships in fiscal 2023 while buying only nine continues. At the U.S. Navy's League Sierra Space Symposium just outside Washington, both Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro and Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday defended their plan as necessary to strike what they call the right balance between strategy and budget. CNO Gilday declared that we need a ready, capable, lethal force more than we need a bigger force that's less ready, less lethal, and less capable. SecNav del Toro said he considered fielding capabilities more significant than anything else, including fleet size. The Navy's latest plan has the fleet size dropping from today's 298 ships down to 280 in 2027 before starting to rise again. Critics focused on the 24-ship inactivations more than new construction, particularly nine littoral combat ships, some of which are so new they have never deployed, and five more cruisers to be decommissioned in addition to five in 2022. Democrat Elaine Luria of Virginia tweeted, the Navy owes a public apology to American taxpayers for wasting tens of billions of dollars on ships they now say serve no purpose. The issues will get even more scrutiny in May when the four congressional defense committees hold Navy budget hearings. A record number of Marine F-35B Lightning Joint Strike Fighters, 16 JSFs at once, operated from the assault ship USS Tripoli in late March and early April to test out the Marine Corps' Lightning Carrier concept to use assault ships as dedicated fixed-wing carrier platforms. F-35Bs from Marine Fighter Attack Squadrons 211 and 225 and Marine Operational Test and Evaluation Squadron 1 operated from the Tripoli off the Southern California coast. The Corps will work up to embarking 20 F-35s at a time to prove out the lightning carrier concept. The Coast Guard Icebreaker Polar Star on April 8th wrapped up 147-day Operation Deep Freeze deployment when it arrived in San Francisco Bay. The Cutter, the only active American heavy icebreaker, operated in Antarctica for 65 days, the longest such deployment since 2004. Polar Star did not return to its home port of Seattle, but instead entered dry dock in Vallejo, California, site of the former Mare Island Navy Yard for the second phase of a five-year, $75 million service life extension program. And in Spain, Navantia shipbuilders in Ferrol began cutting steel April 6th for the first F-110 Bonifaz-class frigate for the Spanish Navy. Spain plans to build five F-110 frigates equipped with Lockheed Martin's Aegis combat system using the S-band variant of the company's new Spy 7 radar, both provided to Spain under U.S. Navy foreign military sales construct. And that's a look at just some of the naval news this week. All right, moving to the discussion portion of our show, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, both Chris and I were 
at the Sea Airspace Symposium for three days. We had a chance to listen to Navy leaders. Uh, we talked to a number of industry folks and uh, saw a lot of friends uh, that we both have in common. Uh, Chris, let, I'll start with you. Uh, what grabbed your attention? Um, what did you learn that maybe you didn't know before? Um, what do you want to share with the audience? <laughs> what do I want to share? Um, probably, uh, it, 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 it's always great to see people, of course, with the pun, with the pandemic, uh, so many people have not seen each other. The, the opportunities to do face-to-face -face have just not been there. You can't really run into people on Zoom. Um, the unexpected, the, the, um, the, the offline conversations that you have are incredibly important in something like this. The, um, the panels, I'm not sure there was, any, there was, a, was a whole lot um, coming out of a lot of the panels and the speeches beyond uh, pretty much what was expected. The stuff on the floor was interesting. Um, you know, HII is rebranding itself now. They, they had, the, they were probably the biggest corporate change in that they, they, they've come out with a new logo, which of course means dramatic changes. Um, and they're trying to present themselves more as a, as a, a more multifaceted, multi-featured defense company, rather than just shipbuilding. There are some people who, who've thought that, well, you know, don't take your, are they moving away from shipbuilding? I've heard that. I'm not so sure that that, that was the sense that I got. Um, they, they're into under underwater vehicles. They're into big data. They're into data. They're into um, electronic warfare systems. Um, and, and they're into management systems. I mean, the, and, and uh, consulting with Alliant, which has any number of contracts in a vast area of a vast number of areas. Um, but I think their, their core business will always remain shipbuilding they're the, they're the nation's largest shipbuilder with two major shipyards newport news and um, ingles so I don't, I don't know what did you what did you think about that chris so first of all i mean i thought they were sort of the focus of the show on the floor um you, you know there were a lot of people that were checking out their rebranding um we had an opportunity on uh Vago's podcast, our, our sister podcast, uh, the Defense and Aerospace Report Daily Pod, for Vago to talk to Chris Kastner, the uh, new CEO and president of uh, HII. Um, and Chris made it very clear that they are 100% still focused on shipbuilding and that that wouldn't change. And um, I mean, he seemed very serious about it. We had an opportunity to talk to Carrie in one of our uh, weekly uh, Carrie, podcasts. Carrie Wilkinson, head of the uh, of English Shipbuilding. We just had her on a pod this week. Right. And so um, I feel very comfortable that their eye is squarely on the shipbuilding ball. Um, but I think it's great that they're expanding their focus into other areas because they know the Navy so well. Um, and so, um, I, yeah, I, I was very comfortable with that. Um, you know, as a communicator, it was interesting to to see the effort that they put into uh, the, the branding work and, you know, the new messaging. Um, I, you know, I thought there was a little bit more in the panels maybe than you did. Um, you know, I, I was happy to hear CNO have a better explanation for um, the anemic budget than was presented during the budget rollout. Um, I felt like when they rolled the budget out, um, they, they tried to oversell and sort of pretend that this budget was doing all of the things that you know, if people thought and had hoped it would do. 
Um, but I felt like the CNO acknowledged um, the fact that they, you know, not just that they were dropping in, in ship numbers, um, but he, he, you know, leaned into this idea that maybe it was anemic um, by defending that idea with the, you know, as we mentioned at the top, that essentially they want to be whole versus have numbers that, that aren't whole, both in terms of people and in terms of capabilities. I thought the secretary also had a had a good answer for that. I, I'm not sure that I agree with that strategy, um, as you and Brian McGrath talked about when you talked to Vago on Tuesday. Um, I, I'm not sure that the this idea of deterrence by uh, punishment um, versus deterrence by denial um, is the way to go. But I mean, that's where the administration is, and so you, you know that that's why you're going to see a lot of these types of ships like the LCS. And the cruisers, uh, the you know aging cruisers, go away. Yeah, I, I, you know, deterrence and combat capability are not competing missions; they're mutually supporting missions. And one without the other isn't isn't particularly useful. But dropping one to focus on the other is probably a bad idea. And that's it's 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 hard to figure out sometimes these days where people are coming from. Um, if you're talking about nothing but all out combat capability that's great the problem is is if you're really good at all this stuff and, and your deterrence actually works that's not what you're doing most of your life um, you're just not engaging in that all out combat you're trying to deter it you're trying to prevent it and most of our ships since world war ii that's how they've spent their entire lives day in day out so you've got to be able to do that. You have to be able to do the non-combat, the non, I'm sorry, I'm not blowing up and killing somebody today work is just as important as that, that lethality that of course is, 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 is the ultimate uh, reason why you want to have a military. Right. But, the, uh, the cop on the beat, right? I mean, that's what, you, you know, yeah. folks in, in naval uniforms have said for years is that not only do we deter, but we also learn, we reassure. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we do well to the left of conflict. And, you know, many of us would like to think that in doing that, we're able to prevent conflict or push it out a little bit further than maybe it would otherwise be. Um, I'm particularly worried, Chris, and I heard this from a lot of people that the things in the budget that, um, the administration is prioritizing over um, that deterrence by denial, they don't show up for several years, right? right? So, um, you know, about this time that we talked that we get to 280 ships is maybe when some of this stuff starts to get to the fleet. Um, I'm probably the most concerned I've been about the uh, new frigate uh, in, in terms of, you know, what, what we've heard from people both officially and unofficially. Um, so I'm a little worried about the mid to late twenties from a, from a Navy standpoint. Yeah, I, I would, I would completely agree. Completely agree. I mean, and, and, you know, you can tell just in the last two months since, since Russia began its Sherman Drang, it's very visible, you know, in, in, in every, every media forum you could find, they were trying to show how powerful and awesome and devastating they were. Um, and then, and then they invaded Ukraine and this war is just, um, is this atrocious war where they're just blasting things to pieces. I think everybody's really on guard now. People are energized and I, this is not translating out of, out of this defense budget. To be fair, these are developments that have happened exceptionally late, exceptionally late in the budget process. 
but you're just not hearing any rhetoric. You're not hearing any any sense of urgency. You're not hearing any repositioning. You're not hearing. You're hearing we've got plenty of time. We're going to work. We're going to we're going to get rid of these things that we have today. We're going to invest it in things we're, we're building and we're starting to build and we're going to build. None of which are going to be around for years and years and years. And even then, not in any kind of level that it's going to make much of a difference until 2030 something, 2030 X, um, 10 years, 15 years out. That's great. But in the meantime, what are you doing? And are you creating an opening for a potential adversary who feel that, okay, if we wait any longer, they're just going to get stronger. So maybe we go now. Um, that's still, it's still, you know, the, the kind of thing that people talk about in, in World War II with Japan as the U.S. Navy began to, to rearm in the two-ocean fleet, was there an element that said, now or never, um, let's, let, let, let's go now. They're just going to get stronger later on. Um, you, don't want, you don't want to be weaker. And that's how this is being perceived. And perceptions are incredibly important. Um, per, uh, I, I think the Navy, the Navy is one of the worst at understanding how things look outside of the Navy. What does this look like to Congress? What does this look like to, to, to voters and citizens? What does it look like to other nations? And perceptions are, in some cases, they're almost everything. Um, and that's, that's what drives reality. Whether it's, whether, it's, whether it's true or not is not necessarily the point. If, people, if everybody thinks it's true, then, that, then it becomes a thing. The Navy doesn't react well to that. And there's no sense of alacrity. There's no sense of a service on the move. There's no sense of dynamism. Um, it's just there are there are spots in the Navy where that is happening. It's not to say it's 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 moribund or anything like that. But from the leadership point of view, it's kind of like yeah, we know we got time. We're working on it. You know, st st stick with us. And I'm not. It's hard to have a lot of confidence in that kind of attitude. Yeah, I mean, and that's very much the DC um, leadership or Norfolk leadership vibe that you get. Um, I feel like you get a different vibe from those in the Pacific. Um, you, you know, I had a chance to to run into an old shipmate, Admiral Sam Paparo, who was there. The um, you know the the Pacific Fleet commander. Um, you know, he said in the breakfast that he uh, that you know when he spoke that. Our force is operating at the top of the stress curve. He said the U.S. Navy is operating every day as if China will invade Taiwan. And he was specifically talking about the Navy in the Pacific. Um, that quote, you know, juxtaposed to what we just talked about, where you're going to sort of have this drop off over the next couple of years in the 20s. If we're already at the top of the stress curve and then we take ships away, we take people away, we're waiting on capability. I'm worried about the next five years. I, I, I really am. Um, I believe the CNO and the secretary when they say that they're working hard to get after it. Um, but I, I think right now it's, it's very much a tale of two or maybe three navies. I think the Med Navy is very busy. I, I think the Navy that's back here in the States is trying to figure out what it needs to do. And then you have a Pacific fleet Navy that is, you know, operating right. as if it could be fight tonight. Um, I'm just not sure how you square all those circles, Chris. And I heard that from a lot of different people this past week. No, that's fair. That's, that's very fair. I think, I think that, that those are good observations. So in terms of the long game, 
you know, we're working on it. We're going to have these new capabilities that'll be here some year. Uh, front and center uh, in, in most Navy discussions is the frigate, the new frigate program, FG-62. And Fincantieri, as, as most people know, is the prime uh, contractor for that to build them up in um, Marinette. But um, the issue of the second yard uh, is, is, has become really clouded now. Where does that stand? Um, so people, you know, the, the, whole, the whole idea with this frigate, we're going to build them, build a lot of them. We want a lot of them fast. Um, they're also trying to replace the fleet numbers that they're losing, but their LCSs they want to throw away. Um, and they want that capability. But to get there, you're probably going to have to have two, even three shipyards all building these ships. Remember, three shipyards were involved in the last frigate program, the Oliver Hazard Perry class. Um, those numbers didn't did not come from one shipyard, but it's originally there. The 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 second era was supposed to come in in 2023. Now they've pushed it back to 2025. Actually, then it's not even clear if they're doing that. Congress did say you can't go to the second yard till you have a mature design ready to go. That design is not yet mature. They haven't they have not yet gone to critical design review. That should happen hopefully in a, in, in a few weeks by the middle of summer. And if all goes according to plan by the early fall, late summer, uh, Marinette should be able to begin fabrication, begin cutting steel of the first ship. Nevertheless, um, the discussions about where's the second yard have gotten exceptionally mushy um, to the point of the uh, program manager said it was pre-decisional now about that. Um, they're clearly, they're being very indistinct about this. There's, well, you know, we're not sure when we're going to do that. We have to wait and see when we're ready, all this. Well, that's not what congressional representatives who are really interested in bringing work to their constituents want to hear. Sorry, that's what they're, that, that's, that's what they really want. And that second yard, while Fincantieri is building, this is the prime on this, a number of shipyards are looking at those frigates as a major prize. Let's, they want that, want to be that second yard from General Dynamics Bath Iron Works to Huntington Ingalls, um, at, at, at Ingalls, uh, to Austell USA, to others. They like to build those ships. They want to know when. Industry wants to have some idea if we're going to compete on something. When is this going to happen? What would we do? What would our plan be? You can't make an effective plan if, well, you know, we're not sure we're going to do that and we're still looking at that and we'll have to wait till we're ready. That's not much of a business plan. Um, that's not likely to go down very well when the hearings begin. Uh, that's really not what, what Congress is want to hear. They've publicly said, you know, you know, of course we have to have two shippers. I'd like to see three. Um, so that, that's the sentiment that's on the Hill. It's work. Um, and the Navy's being really mushy about this right now. I think that's, uh, they're gonna have to get their act together. If not, I mean, make a decision, tell people what your decision is and be a lot more specific about it. And right now they're, they're leaving that to not the, not the top leadership is, is, is not really being very declarative about this yet. And uh, people who really are kind of left to, to deal with it, but they, they're not really on the decision-making level are the ones who are talking about it now. It's really not fair to them.
Yeah, I, I mean, there's two sides to this coin, right? On one side of the coin is there's a lot of potential out there, right? As the Navy talks about different unmanned platforms that it may want industry to build. It talks about a potential DDGX uh, in, in the future. It, um, and then on the other side of the coin, there's a lot of capability, or, or I should say a lot of building capacity at, at these different yards. It would be really nice if the Navy... Um, it, while trying to drive an, uh, an environment of competition, um, it, if they could, um, you know, answer some of these questions and get rid of some of the uncertainty for the different yards. You've got Austo who made a big move into steel. As you mentioned, you've got some capacity at Bath, like you talked about. Um, you've got capacity at HII, as we heard in our interview on Monday. Um, and the more that you can take away that uncertainty and get folks thinking, you know, hey, I'm I'm all for not building a, or not starting a second line until you're comfortable with the design. But I think you can make that decision and get the folks in industry thinking that way, get rid of that uncertainty, get them committed to the program so that uh, Fink and Terry doesn't have to learn these lessons in isolation. Um, I, I think that would help a lot. Again, both with the, the relationships on the Hill, but also with the relationships and in industry. All those interviews that we did last week, Chris, those industry leaders told us while being supportive of the Navy that the uncertainty is what dogs them. Uncertainty right. is what right. makes prices go up. Uncertainty is what makes it hard for them to keep their workforce. Uncertainty is what makes it hard for them to um, you know, be competitive in, in all the work that they do. So you know, I, I'd love for the Navy to do what it could to get rid of some of that uncertainty. Yeah, you know, it's it's too bad. I mean, they they could have. It's even not 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 too late now, but it's not going to happen. In, decided on who the second yard was already, and it had them be involved in this design process in in finalizing all these all these. I mean, it's thousands of aspects going to producing a ship. It's incredibly complex be nice if they were already in those meetings already seeing their briefings already getting ready for it even if they wouldn't be the first ones to build a ship um it just makes it harder for everybody and then of course you know the navy wants to hold everybody to account how come you're not ready yet and why aren't you i mean it's, it's just um it's a self-perpetuating blame machine that um you just see happening right now and they're and they're not changing it they're not they're not they don't seem to be applying sound business practices to what is a business that just, uh, you can see it happening. Was there anything else that actually got you at the show? I mean, the, you know, this, the, the, the second shipyard was a constant thing of a yeah. topic of discussion. I was going to ask you what the coolest thing that you saw was. I'll go first. I really enjoyed spending some time at the Australian pavilion, I guess you'd say, or the Australian, uh, um, you know, area and seeing all the things that the Aussies are working on and that they're trying to, you know, either get our primes to buy or to kind of pique the interest of, uh, of the U S Navy or the U S coast guard. That, that was pretty cool. Um, I feel like we're the only people, maybe Chris, that aren't selling a small UAV. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, may, maybe we need the Cavus right. ship, small UAV. You, you know, I feel like we're missing out. Everybody had a UAV uh on the floor um and and so i mean you, you know that's obviously well-timed with what's going on in ukraine um and then it was it was interesting to see different types of vendors um you know andrel was there um you know for a company that that um kind of has that startup 
reputation or that disruption reputation, their booth sort of looked very traditional to me. And that's not a ding. I mean, I think they realize that for a show like this, it's important to be out there and show the types of wares that they have to sell again, whether it's to industry or directly to the government. Um, but you know, it was, it was nice to see, as you said, uh, uh, all of our industry friends and as well as friends in uniform. I, you know, there, there is cool stuff. There's always cool stuff at the show at these shows. And a lot of times you really have to slow down and pause and just, you know, take, take it in. Sometimes that's hard for a lot of people who are constantly rushing around one side to the other, or even running into people. It's also interesting what you don't see. And I'm, uh, you know, a company called Eastern shipbuilding in Panama city, Florida is building the first four uh, offshore patrol cutters for the, for the coast guard um there's a lot of there's a lot of doubt about that program and how well eastern is handling that program and the, and the coast guard is putting putting more ships of that class up for bid um that's a competition that that'll be answered sometime this year um eastern was a presence at the show until they got the contract and then they haven't really shown up since then um, if they did early on that I admit that I, that, that I'm misremembering, but they haven't been for the last two or three, um, CR spaces and, and you, it'd be nice to talk to them. It'd be nice if they were out maybe, maybe spreading a little, uh, little more confidence in what they're doing. Um, uh, because right now they, they're, um, they're just not, they're just not, not present. Another company that I, I would like to see show up at the show is, um, the, uh, Titan group, which is uh, in, in the ship repair. This is, um, uh, Titan is a holding company, really, but they have been buying up um, several shipyards and 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 making them into a self in, into a group that supports themselves. They bought up um, the, the two Vigor shipyards in the Pacific Northwest, uh, in Portland and Seattle, um, which this, this these are areas that the West Coast is, is particularly um, uh, capacity on the West Coast is not not where the Navy would like it and. They also bought the small uh, Continental Maritime shipyard from Huntington Ingalls down in San Diego. And they've bought uh, MHI, Marine Hydraulics, in Norfolk, which is a one pier rocking shipyard. I, I just saw them, I saw them yesterday, four ships in. They, they are, which is, the, which is the max they can handle. GD NASCO has three ships. That's the max they can handle at their yard. Um, those, are, those are significant shipyards and the whole ship repair business is just as critical to the Navy, maybe even more critical in some ways than ship construction. They don't quite get the, get the attention other people do. We, we talked to Paul Smith from BAE Systems um, on our pod uh, about ship repair. Um, and that's just an area that is incredibly important and it, it'd, it'd be nice to see more about them. But Titan is now competing with BAE and with GD NASCO for a lot of the ship repair work. So the major, amount of ship repair work for the u.s navy would have been it'd be, it'd be nice to see them at the show and get to know them better and they're they're very they're interesting um that's why you come to the shows because you can it's easy to walk over and start to talk to people and, and and it really works it's um you get a lot more done rather than come visit us anyway so that's 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 sort of my take some what you don't see sometimes is is important so. Agree. Great week. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, look forward to the next one. <laughs> Always. Okay, it's time for Squawk Box. 
Oh, I'm going to have to squawk today. I know. So some years ago, Congress told the Navy three years in a row not to decommission and throw away a group of Aegis cruisers. The Navy stopped arguing publicly to decommission them, but then simply took the ships out of service and effectively laid them up, inducting them into a cruiser modernization program, stripped of gear, destored, defueled with minimum caretaker crews, but with no meaningful preservation work, they rapidly deteriorated. When the seven ships in that program were to be brought back, all were in bad shape. Those modernization overhauls took far longer and cost much more than expected. Two of the ships were found to be in such a sorry, sorry state, the Navy didn't even try to reactivate them, and they're now sources of spare parts for other ships. One of the cruisers, the Vicksburg, along with the amphibious ship Tortuga, is on the DECOM list, even after the nation has sunk nearly $400 million just into reactivating only those two ships. I just saw them. Work is continuing on both, even as the Navy seeks to toss them to the side. The pathetic material condition of these ships is as much a result of deliberate neglect and outright subterfuge as of being used up and getting old. A better steward of those warships might have cared for them a whole lot better. And just last month, Congress said no to the Navy's efforts to decommission three littoral combat ships. Congress even provided the Navy with operating funds for the ships. So what happened? The Navy came right back in this latest budget and seeks to to decommission those same ships, doubling, I'm sorry, tripling down the request to not three, but nine ships. Not only that, but there are indications the Navy already is ignoring congressional direction and simply parking some of the ships, even to the point of reassigning their crews elsewhere. I've been watching and covering Congress for darn near my entire life. My mother was a longtime Hill staffer. I heard plenty of stories. And I can confidently report that year in, year out, regardless of party or representation, whatever the issue, when some government entity repeatedly disregards congressional direction and does just the opposite, those folks on the Hill get, well, they get pretty darn pissed. Congress takes it as an issue of outright disrespect, all of them. Those are things they just don't forget. So here's a tip to Navy leaders heading to the Hill for the upcoming budget hearings. Stand by for incoming. It's going to be brutal. Yes, it will. Well, that does it for this week. A quick programming note. Don't forget, we just produced four special podcasts, each focusing on a single defense supplier. That's right. Those special podcasts with HII, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, and General Atomics Aeronautics are available wherever you're listening to this podcast. Check them out. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye.